Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates. America competes. Smelly, what's your sleep schedule like? So normally I wake up at like four in the morning. Around that time, a lot of my friends in Europe or Russia are awake. So I I work on VX Underground. I code, I catch up with them, see what's going on. And then around three or four in the afternoon, I take a couple hour nap, wake up again, and then I'm up to like midnight, go back to sleep and then, you know, back up early again. So my sleep is kind of fractionated. VX Underground is a library, but it's probably unlike any library you've seen before. It's a library for malware samples. Nothing more, nothing less. According to the team that runs it. They occupy a rather unique position in the international community of threat intelligence officials, ransomware developers, and cybersecurity researchers. They're a neutral party. And because of that neutrality, VX Underground's founder, known by his online handle Smelly, is able to converse directly with the incredibly paranoid darknet threat actors we've been talking about this entire time. Smelly asked to remain anonymous for this interview. For reasons that you will hear yourself, we agreed to the request. We've verified his identity as the person running the VX Underground accounts online. His voice has been masked as well. In the 1980s, there was a place called VX's. And it stood for virus exchange. And so people would come together on bulletin board systems, old school internet places, and they would exchange malware ideas or some malware they wrote or something they had seen in the wild before affecting a machine. There was a bunch of them. They were all over the place. And then eventually in the 90s, late 90s, a guy uh, under the alias Hermit, he's Ukrainian, he started a website called VX Heavens. And the idea be- behind VX Heaven was to aggregate all of these different BBSs or websites into a singular location to make a library where he would have malware samples, things found in the wild, malware papers, malware source code. Um, he made a forum there so other malware enthusiasts could, you know, get together and talk about things. And so in the late 2000s, I was on VX7, but I was a little bit younger. I was in uh, my late teen years. So as I got older, I said, wow, I want to go back to VX7. Um, and it was gone. Smelly intended for VX Underground to be that space for malware source code, samples, papers, a global index for malicious software. Over time, VX Underground's profile rose and their reputation grew. When it started in the 90s, cybercrime wasn't as rampant as it is now, and malware wasn't as sophisticated or organized, right? Organized cybercrime wasn't really quite a thing yet. So as VX Heavens got older, there was kind of a fork in this VX space where some people went towards cybercrime and some people stayed on the non-criminalistic side. Some people call black hats, white hats. I don't really like that term, but so some went to crime, some stayed neutral or I guess non-criminals. And so VX Underground now, I encounter a lot of people that are journalists such as yourselves, or I encounter students all across the globe, professors at universities who say, hey, can we use your malware samples in our class? And I say, sure. I've spoken with computer emergency response teams from governments saying, hey, is it okay if we clone your website? And I say, sure. And then of course, I also have threat actors like Lockbit, for example, that's aware of my website, and I'm sure they use it. 
there was a large uh, botnet, Yersniff, that openly told me that they used the website. So it attracts both researchers, I guess white hats you could say, or criminals, black hats. And the thing is, I get information from both sides, right? So there's white hats who publish a new malware technique or a research paper. And then if you go online to, as some would say, the dark nets, they also release papers there of techniques they found. And so in order for me to make my library as large as possible or the most succinct and up to date, I pull from both. And so that means I have to be as neutral as possible at all times, not to, not to step on anyone's metaphorical toes. I've been talking to the sorts of people who study, investigate, track down, even prosecute darknet cybercriminals. But whom I haven't spoken to yet is someone who actually chats with them on a regular basis, person to person. You know when I said I didn't want to shy away from the shadowy nature of the darknet? Well, this is how I do it. We are a library, and I keep it as simple as that, right? Everyone who's in VX Underground as a whole, we're not really here to make a political statement, right? We're not anonymous, like the hacktivist thing people use. You know, we're not trying to be some self-righteous group. We're not trying to tear down walls and all that. You know, it's just, it, it's very simple. We, I personally wanted a place where I could keep papers and samples and code and share it. And then initially it was slow to start, but it, it keeps growing. It's growing very, very fast. That's why I'm talking to a dude called Smelly today. Despite the name and the voice, Smelly's having a normal one, wherever he's talking to me from today. I'm Mohar Chatterjee. This is Politico Tech. That's a very complex world of the cyber criminals engaging in illicit activity, these non-government actors doing foreign intelligence. How do you actually investigate crypto? To advanced forensic techniques. International law. Oh, shoot, is this like terrorist or is this like those wily homeland security agents again ransomware operators laundered money privacy and anonymity are not bad funds transfers financial crimes and the way technology is involved in that because well drugs we've observed more and more threat actors but he wants to look as evil or as scary as possible the major players behind the darknet markets On October 30th, the VX Underground Twitter account said they'd interviewed someone who purported to be the Lockbit Ransomware Group's founder. Yep. How did you get in touch with one of the world's most notorious ransomware gangs? Uh, so if you go to any darknet forum, and I really don't like that word darknet, that's the most commonly used term to refer to it as, right? But he's on there. He's pretty active. He Sometimes he advertises. Sometimes he goes in there and he talks shit to people. Sometimes he brags and says he's surrounded by beautiful women and lives in a mansion or a skyscraper or something. And uh, for the most part, he is semi-friendly, willing to talk. I reached out to him once out of curiosity. I think in 2019, I said, hey, um, Smelly, I, I'm the, one of the guys on VX Underground, I'm the admin for it, whatever. I just wanted to reach out and say hi. And he was like, oh, hey, what's up, Smelly? Yeah, I've seen your website. It's pretty cool. Then I said, oh, thanks. Um, and then ever since then, I've just been casually talking with him back and forth since 2019. I wouldn't say we're best buddies. I don't know anything about the guy, really. But, you know, there's been a minor acquaintance going back and forth for a couple of years now. 
The person you spoke to for the interview, LB0, uh, who are they, to the best of your knowledge? And why did they agree to speak with you beyond the, you know, I've seen your website, you're pretty cool. I, I call him LB0 or Lockbit Member Zero um, because that's the best way I can identify him. It's his support account where people in the public or people who are, I guess you can say, affiliates of his organization can communicate with the administrative team that's behind Lockbit. So the reason why he agreed to the interview, though, is the same why a lot of large-scale threat actors agree to interviews is that it gives them notoriety. And so whenever I interview them, I have to be careful to frame questions in a way that does not give them ideal publicity. So Lockbit's done interviews in the past where he wants to be the bad guy. He wants to be framed as this evil bastard, anti-American child killer. Uh, maybe not anti-American, but because he probably has affiliates in America. I, I honestly don't know. But he wants to look as evil or as scary as possible because he believes that will attract more people to his organization to commit crime. So normally he is semi-willing to speak with journalists. However, though, he does not like journalists very often. He says that he'll give them an answer and they'll put a spin on it um, and try to make it their own version of the truth. So I think he agreed to speak with me because he's told me that he thinks that I tell the truth and I don't try to put a narrative on things. Lockbit has launched more than 30 cyber attacks this year alone. They strike frequently and so far... No one seems to be out of bounds. On December 14th, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Health Sector Cybersecurity Coordination Center, better known as HC3, issued a threat brief saying cybercriminals were using Lockbit 3.0 and Black Cat ransomware to target the healthcare sector. To try and understand the kind of person who's able to target hospitals with impunity, I asked Smelly to tell me more about what interacting with the Lockbit founder was like. And if you ever look at what he says online, he is hyper paranoid of law enforcement. I've been speaking with him, as I said, casually since like 2019. He still says I'm FBI or NSA or Europol or GCHQ or FSB or SBU or whatever. Think of any acronym law enforcement agency. He thinks that I am part of them. And no matter what I say, uh, he doesn't believe me. And when I asked him why, he said that it is in his best interest to assume everyone he speaks to is law enforcement to keep his guard up. But he also exhibits antisocial personality traits. And by that, I don't mean like, you know, he doesn't want to go out to bars with friends. And I mean like antisocial personality disorder. He's very anti-establishment, very against the law. He's indifferent to people's suffering. He displaces blame very often. They target healthcare facilities now, so like hospitals and stuff. And so when I challenge him on that, I say, bro, you've got this place in your metaphorical vice grip. They can't operate. And then he'll say, well, Smelly, maybe they should have better security. That's not my fault. That's their fault. Or he'll say, Smelly, if I didn't do it, someone else would do it. That's not my fault. Or he'll say, uh, healthcare industries make hundreds of billions of dollars a year. They should pay for better security. These people are wealthy. We're not. That's their fault. He will never accept blame for what he does, ever. He'll always displace it onto others. And I want to be clear, that's incredibly fascinating insight. But for the record, these are kind of speculative claims, but the claims are made based on your interactions with the Lockbit de facto founder. 
And like I said before, these guys mean business. You say that you've been the subject of some kind of scary threats in the past where your anonymity was compromised. And I just want to confirm that I understood you correctly. And if there are any more specific details you want to provide, I'd like to know. My anonymity wasn't compromised. So what happened was is I did a interview with a ransomware operator. Since VX Underground, right, is me and just a bunch of other people. We don't have public relations. We don't have HR. We don't have lawyers or anything like that. And so it's been a learning experiences and we've made a lot of mistakes. So initially when we first started interviewing people, we let the public ask them questions, which was a poor decision at the time because people ask really, really dumb questions but we still pass them to the threat actor regardless. Following the release of that interview, a very well-known and notorious threat actor, but the FBI and NSA and uh, threat intelligence is very aware of this person. And just for the record, since this is gonna be made public, it was not Wazalaka who threatened me, um, it was someone else. But this person was very upset that I published the interview. He said that this person makes our group look weak he had a lot of very anti-American things to say to me. He referred to me as a pindo. And if people don't know, a pindo is a very derogatory term for Americans used in Russia. Basically means like fat, greasy, disgusting, whatever. And um, he said that if I don't remove the interview, um, he would utilize violence as a service. And so if you don't know what that is, there's places online where you can pay people to go to someone's house and throw a brick through it or kidnap them at gunpoint or jump them in the street or multi-off someone's house. And um, videos of that have surfaced online too, by the way, it's completely real. And, you know, he was saying, if you don't take it down, you know, we'll pipe bomb your house or I'll have someone kill your dog and, you know, shit like that. So I ended up speaking with him for probably a couple of hours, negotiating with him, trying to find a middle ground, um, which we eventually did meet. There's a good deal of method to the madness, and organization is key in running a successful cybercrime enterprise. So what I think people don't understand is that this isn't the 1990s anymore. So like Lockbit Ransomware Group, for example, it's not one guy running it. It's multiple people, right? So they have the manager, or sometimes they refer to it as an organizer. They have translators, they have web developers, they have graphic designers that they contract work out to. And for translators, they may have multiple translators, right? There may be people who speak English or Spanish or Portuguese or Hindu or Japanese or Chinese, Hindi. whatever. Hindi. Um, yeah, I'm yeah, going to correct that every time. Oh, Hindi. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Pardon me. Pardon my ignorance. Um, <laughs> it's fine. Go on. Well, I tell the ransomware guys, too, that they're like the mafia in the 1930s and stuff, you know, like Al Capone or whenever. Uh, ransomware groups are modern day mafias. They operate very similar to cartels, or I think they do at least, right? I mean, they have employees, they have affiliates, they launder money. It's organized crime. It's not just some kid in a basement anymore. And the other unusual thing is that ransomware groups have conflict with each other. They beef because they're competition and they know each other. Um, they know their aliases. So that's also sort of fascinating too, is that Alpha Group or ALF, they also call themselves Black Hat. The people who did Colonial Pipeline, they very openly do not like Lockbit. And Lockbit very openly does not say kind things to them either. However, though, 
they have done business with each other. Lockbit has purchased things off of Alpha. And then they have people who do network administration, people who are in charge of servers and stuff like that, make sure everything's online. They have shadow bankers, people who are in charge of money laundering operations uh, and making sure people get paid. And then, of course, they have the affiliates, which is where most of the damage is done. So Lockbit, if you want to join their organization, right, you're not like an employee. You're more of like a pseudo contractor. So if you want to join, you say, hey, I want to join. And so they'll do a, a dark web background check. They'll, they'll see if you've been active on forums. If you if they know anyone who knows you, if someone can vouch for you, just see if you've been around. Um, and if they can't, they say, if you want access, it's $20,000. There's a difference, though, in uh, recruitment for Russian-speaking people versus non-Russian-speaking. Am I correct? Yeah, certain groups are a little bit different. There's some groups that won't do business with people who are not Russian because they don't trust people who are outside of the CIS, which is the Commonwealth of Independent States, ex-Soviet countries. They will only work with people who are from that particular region. So that could be Russia, Kazakhstan, Ukraine. In the interview, LB0 said their team currently has over 10 people. But there's nuance to that number. Can you talk to me a little bit about the different kinds of people? But when LB0 says their team currently has over 10 people, that's not entirely accurate as a order of magnitude thing. Right. So because he doesn't include affiliates, and that's where a lot of the damage is done. So again, if someone wants to join Lockbit, you know, they do the background check and all that, but that doesn't make them a team member. That makes them an affiliate. And so what happens is now, is that an affiliate is a hacker and what they do is they go out and hack a company you know it could be any joe blow down the street it could be a lawn mowing company for all they care and whenever they breach this company they're going to deploy lockbits ransomware it's going to encrypt the machines on the network and sometimes during that too they exfiltrate data which means they take data off of the network and then that's it so lockbit provides the metaphorical gun that they use to pull the trigger to do the ransomware and the affiliates are the ones who are in charge of actually doing the hacking. So whenever the affiliate actually hacks it, deploys the ransomware that Lockbit made, then Lockbit is in charge of negotiations. They'll talk to the people they ransomed. And then if they pay, the affiliate who did the crime, who did the hacking, gets 85% of the money. Lockbit takes 15%. I think that's what it currently is. So the Lockbit group, like the core team, develops the software. Correct. And the affiliates are in charge with infiltrating the specific system that they want to infiltrate. Yep. And they can do whatever they want. Lockbit does not care. He does not manage them. He does not tell them what to do. He doesn't tell them what hours to work. It's not their concern anymore. They can do whatever they want. The only thing is that if they are not active for a certain period of time, then he deletes their account and says you can no longer be an affiliate. You must remain active to some degree. Right. Like Um, keep bringing the money in. Correct. And then if they do not, then they're kicked out. And that's pretty much it. Dude, fascinating stuff. And so for affiliates, though, he has about 100 right now. Oh, no, that's an order of magnitude higher right? than the 10 we were talking about. Right. So there's 10 people who are actually in the team, which again can be LB0 himself, the guy who started it maybe, and then the developers who work on Lockbit, and then shadow bankers. Because so whenever a victim pays... That's going to be in cryptocurrency, but someone actually has to be in charge of laundering it. And on top of laundering it, you need to make sure that the laundered money is clean and then that the affiliate gets paid and then that Lockbit gets paid. 
without exposing anyone's identities or making any mistakes. And then on top of that, the shadow banker has to find a way to convert that into some sort of tangible good, whether it be cash or gold or whatever. But that's a challenge in operational security, that interface between going from virtual to real. Those people are part of the main group, aren't they? Right, yeah, the shadow banker is part of the main group, but each group operates differently. Other groups may say, no, we're not going to help you launder the money that's on you. We also dug deeper into how the Russia-Ukraine war impacted the day-to-day operations of these cybercrime groups. You mentioned that some groups, you know, they only trust former Soviet state people. And that's where I got to ask, what was the impact of the Russia-Ukraine war on the cyber criminal collectives that you know of? Profound. That is the best way to put it is profound because from that, I asked several large ransomware groups. They said, hey, has there been an impact on operations since the start of the Ukrainian conflict? And every single one said yes. And so like Alpha Ransomware Group, formerly known as Black Matter and before that Dark Side, they said they thought that they had lost approximately 20% of their affiliates. Lockbit said that he believes he's lost somewhere between 20 and 40%. But either way, he's lost affiliates as well because of it. So their Ukrainian affiliates are gone. And some ransomware groups just refuse to do business with Ukrainians now. Wait, let's break that down a little bit. So for the record, Darkseid, they're the people who claimed responsibility for... For the colonial pipeline incident, correct? That's the one that top of mind for a lot of folks. They did get in trouble for it, didn't they? Like, what, they eventually... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, continue. Why did you laugh? You said, did they get into trouble? And yes, the repercussions from that were <laughs> massive. So following the colonial pipeline incident, a lot of cybercrime forums banned the discussion of ransomware in the public eye. So they said, you can no longer talk about ransomware in our public forums. Because the best way I could describe it is, according to these groups, is that that's when the United States government swung back. That's what they've reported. I don't know what that means in their eyes, but it caused a giant shift in what they allow and what they do not allow and how they operate. Interesting. What are the main differences in experience when you're on a closed darknet forum versus an open one? Like, what even is a closed darknet forum? To answer that as honest as possible, I don't know precisely because I have never tried to get into the more private sections. I am in some private forums and I've talked to people privately, but what goes on in the other parts, I honestly don't know. I assume it's just another market, but it's more tight-knit and trusted. Immediately, I'm like, I want to know more. But also, I appreciate your honesty in being clear about what you can and cannot talk about. Yeah, I mean, with those sort of things, the only way to get in is to be vouched in. And I do talk to threat actors. And if I wanted in, maybe they would vouch for me. But I tell threat actors very directly, you know, I'm I'm not a criminal. And so a lot of them will say, I I assume they would say, I've never tried. But I'd assume they say, well, if you want in, commit a crime. Prove to us that you're not a Fed or NSA or Eurobull or whatever, you know, do something with us illegally. And if you do, then maybe we'll let you. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's sort of like compromise yourself a little bit. Yeah, get some blood on your hands or something, and then maybe we'll think about it. But again, I've never tried. For the record, dear listener, neither have I. And there's also another angle of impact there, though. And that was the Russian draft. Correct. Which is an actual problem, too. So... Some affiliates that I knew have told me, they're like, hey, Smelly, I've got bad news. I've got to take a little vacation. 
I'll be gone for a couple of months, maybe longer. I don't know when I'll be back. And I'm like, oh, where are you going? And they're like, it doesn't matter. And then they're just gone. And then when I asked, they're like, I think he was drafted. Oh, okay. So these are the people who, you know, maybe couldn't dodge the Russian draft. Correct. And then some others. So there was, uh, oh, what's his name? Raccoon Stealer. I mean, he fled with his girlfriend and then got arrested the second he left the ex-Soviet countries. But yeah, so then he was arrested. And the raccoon stealer guy, he is fighting extradition to the United States. He he does not want to come to the United States because he believes that a judge will throw the book at him, um, which is probably correct. I mean, that's not an unreasonable thing to expect. How do you see the Russia-Ukraine war affecting these spaces in the long term? Like, what's going to be the permanent impact, do you think? So I would like to say that I don't really know for sure because I'm not an expert on geopolitics. I see hot takes all the time on, on Twitter and the news of, oh, Russia's going to do this, Ukraine's going to do that, NATO's going to do this, blah, 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 blah. So uh, how the war turns out, I don't know. But I know for a fact right now, because Russia is on such bad terms with any NATO ally, that they see it as a golden opportunity to commit crime. A lot of have just openly been like, yeah, bro, there's no holding back now. Now we can do whatever we want and face no repercussions in any manner. One of them said that he was arrested by the FSB, the Russian FBI, I guess, whatever their equivalent is. And they asked him, you know, the Americans said you're doing this. Is this true? And they were like, no, Americans are liars. And then they were like, you're goddamn right. And then that was pretty much it. And they let him go. Are you kidding? No, he said that was pretty much it. Like, think about from, like, a cooperation perspective. Like, you can say then, as a Russian authority, yeah, we brought that guy in. He said he wasn't doing the things you said he was doing. We let him go. Even in cases where the Russian government has had concrete proof of a cyber threat actor's identity, they've taken little to no public action. There's a well-known threat actor named Wazalaka, and he was doxxed allegedly by Brian Krebs, a, a journalist, and whenever... Brian Krebs doxed Wasawaka. Wasawaka came forward on Twitter. He was drunk. He was swearing in Russian. And he straight up like admitted it on camera that, yeah, I did it. Then he posted photos of him with listing all the companies he hacked. He showed off uh, his beautiful home in Russia, his expensive cars, and nothing happened. He's still out there doing shit. Nothing happened. No, 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 nothing happened. His name is Mikhail Medvedev, I think. He straight up was like, yeah, I did that shit. And they're like, are these your other aliases? And he's like, yeah, it's my other aliases. He's most known for ransoming the Washington Police Department. I keep coming back to something Keith Malarski, the ex-FBI cyber investigator, said about the threat actors that he used to take down. At the end of the day, Keith was convinced that the key to tackling cyber threats was to understand the person behind the keyboard. This interview with Smelly was the perfect opportunity for me to do exactly that. It's a wild world, and some of these threat actors, um, the reason I do interviews with them is because they want to be seen as bad guys, but a lot of the times they're just normal people too. Like one of them who does infrastructure, who worked with Matt V for Wazawaka, he doesn't like violence at all. He thinks boxing and all that is scary to him. He's afraid of blood. He's vegan. He doesn't like hurting animals. He doesn't smoke. He's very big on family and religion and stuff. 
So these hardened threat actors you see doing these terrible things, they're regular people too, with thoughts and dreams and goals and families. And it's just interesting to see. The other thing that's sort of strange too is that whenever you talk with them enough, they say, oh, you guys have it so good in the West. You people are so lucky. You don't know how easy you have it. And a lot of them are like, oh, I want to leave Russia. They're patriotic for Russia, but they do not like Russia still. Not all of them, of course, but some of them. Before I let him go, I had to ask Smelly one last question. Why do they call you Smelly? So I don't know if you've ever been in a room with the doors closed and the windows shut and you're just on the computer, but computers put out a lot of heat and that room will start to get very hot. So my room would get very hot. I would close the door. I'd be coding, working on VX Underground, gaming, whatever. And my wife would come in and be like, oh my God, it's so hot in here. It's like an oven. And, you know, I'd say whatever. And then she'd be like, you're so smelly. Ew, you stink. And I'd be like, oh, I'm sorry. And then, you know, she'd hug me or squeeze me and say, oh, you're my smelly man. And so uh, when I was trying to think of an alias, I'd say, well, my, my wife calls me a smelly man. And I'd say, it says I'm stinky whenever I'm, you know, in my room and it's hot and I'm working and stuff. So uh, I guess I'll just go with smelly. I think that's a good note to end the series on. For 10 episodes now, we've journeyed through the internet's most secret forums, trying to separate truth from hype, trying to understand the big geopolitical forces that have shaped the latest evolution of darknet communities. We've spoken to investigators, prosecutors, legislators, regulators, policy influencers, researchers, and cyber intelligence professionals about the global network of cyber threats and the technologies that prop them up. I'd like to think we've even gotten to know each other a little bit along the way. If you liked our show, find me on the World Wide Web and drop me a line. I'm always listening. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Brooke Hayes is the senior editor of audio at Politico. Jenny Ament is the executive producer and head of audio at Politico. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And although this is the end of our Darknet series, Politico Tech is just getting started. Stay tuned for more episodes in 2023. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Mohar Chatterjee. Thank you for listening. The end. <laughs>